See the world from a totally different perspective? Ready for provocative conversation, intriguing stories, and inspiration? Then don't touch that dial. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. She'll give you something to talk about all week long. Now, here's Francesca. What if you took the time to really soak in? Good morning. Welcome to Talk with Francesca. That's talkwithfrancesca.com. You're listening to AM 1510, WMEX Boston, and the Legends, WNBP in Newburyport. This portion of Talk with Francesca is sponsored by Anthony Capolino Hair Salon in Somerville. I personally wouldn't go anywhere else. Anthony knows how to take your old frumpy winter style from boring to fabulous. And don't forget to tell Anthony that Francesca sent you and get 10% off for first-timers. All right, a little housekeeping. The last of the tickets to Dishing with the Divas went last week to Nara Silva in Everett. The show was last night, and I heard it was fabulous. Okay, so let's get going. Do you ever wonder what special qualities Bill Gates, Andy Grove, and Steve Jobs have in common that made them uniquely suited to running such successful companies? Well, with me here today, Professor David Yaffe, co-author of Strategy Rules, Five Timeless Lessons from Bill Gates, Andy Grove, and Steve Jobs, um, is the author, the co-author um, and editor of nine books and has written extensively for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Harvard Business Review. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining us here this morning on Talk with Francesca. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. So, David, what was it about these guys that made them capable of building three of the most valuable companies the world's ever known, despite their differences in backgrounds and personalities? Well, what we were able to discover when we looked at them systematically across their entire careers was that they had a, a number of traits that were in common that we think are probably kinds of things that people who want to build really successful organizations need to do as well. Uh, number one, I would say, is they, they harbored outside ambitions, both for themselves and for their companies. They wanted to change the world. They didn't just want to build an organization or make money. They really wanted to change the world. In addition, uh, they cultivated a, a ferocious work ethic, both for themselves and their employees. They worked extremely hard. Uh, they were dedicated to their organizations, and they set an example, which everyone in their company thought was going to be the way they had to work to be successful as well. Was that uh, because they were so, excuse me for just a second, but was that because they had, such a, they had such a great work ethic or was it because they were sort of so obsessed with, with changing the world? It was both, to be honest. Or uh, could it be that they just craved that kind of approval? Um, I think it was probably that as well. I think that uh, they, they definitely had a strong work ethic. They were mm-hmm. sure. They were, they were focused on, on working incredibly hard. Even Bill Gates, when he was reflecting back on uh, his memory of Steve Jobs, said what we had in common is we both worked super hard. And that was just part of the way in which they thought about their lives. Mm-hmm. So what, what does super hard mean? Does that mean seven days a week, no vacation time, um, young, starting at 5 in the morning, ending at 10 at night? And the answer is yes. When they were young, that's exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. They work through the weekends. They sometimes work 80, 90-hour weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, they, they were willing to, to do whatever it took in order to develop a product they thought that was going to change the world. So they were clearly driven, but would you say there's a little workaholism in that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the good news is, is that as they got older, as they got more mature, they actually did develop reasonable family lives. They, they were able to do a little bit better in their work life balance, but it was not until their companies were 
in pretty good shape, and, and the organizations had already developed the kinds of uh, standards that we're just talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they were they obviously had an incredible work ethic. Um, they wanted to change the world. What else? Uh, part of it was their leadership style, which is they valued and provoked intense debate in the organization. They didn't respect people who were yes-men. They respected people who would stand up to them, who would argue with them, who could develop a great um, counter-argument to whatever it is they were trying to do. Because I think they believe that having that kind of uh, discussion and debate is what generated great ideas. Hmm. Uh, I think a, a, a fourth element was they were, all three of them were great intimidators and great motivators. People were afraid of them. They yeah, were almost they, o- yeah. always the smartest guys in the room. And when they heard something that they thought was less than stellar, they would take their heads off. Um, that seems a little counter. I'm sorry, but it seems a little counterintuitive to to um, being a great leader. But go, well, go ahead. I just had to kind of throw that in. I mean, to be intimidating is not generally well. And that's true. The, none of these guys were your typical great leader model that we tend to think about mm. when we think about great leaders. Right. They were in fact quite different. Uh, they did intimidate people, but, but that intimidation also led them to be great motivators of people. Because when they praised people, people were on cloud nine. <laughs> because it was so unbelievable that they were actually doing that. That's right. That's right. And that's a, that's a kind people of an really old... tried to get praised, and they would work incredibly hard to get that praise. So do you think that, that they actually withheld that from their employees purposefully? Well, I, I, you know, I, we talked to a lot of people in all of these companies, mm-hmm. and um, none of these three guys were afraid to call people uh, stupid and tell people that their product mm-hmm. ideas were bad. Um, it happened all the time. But they did have the ability to reward people occasionally, and when they did, it made people really feel like they had accomplished something. But there's got to be, David, some kind of a ratio. I mean, if you're always just kicking the, the daylights out of people, um, you know, and every once in a very blue moon they get a little compliment. I don't think that's going to fly, you know. I mean, no matter what, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but, um, you know, people can only take so much abuse unless they're and a little, that, um, you know, masochistic. And, and they did balance. I mean, they always balanced. Yeah. That they, they would argue and debate and fight and often tell people they weren't on the right track. But at the same time, they then turn around at the end of the conversation and say, okay, I think we've got it. I think we've now sort of gotten to a good point. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't always on one side or always on the other, but it was very much the, the tension that they created about people worried about being embarrassed by them on the one hand, but mm. feeling that if they got rewarded, people would pat them on the back. Well, you know, I did not read the, the first book um, about Steve Jobs. Um, had just heard about it, but now there's another one coming out that's that supposedly I don't even know what the name of it is. Do you? Coming Steve Jobs. Yeah. Okay. And so, and this book is supposed to sort of set the record straight that he wasn't such a, a, a you know, ruthless, vicious, horrible manager. Is that right? <laughs> that, I haven't read the book. It's uh, not out yet. It's yeah. out, I guess, in a couple of days. Yeah. And that's what I've read as well. Um, but you know, I look. I I knew Steve. Oh, you did. Uh, yeah, of course. I knew all of these guys. Uh-huh. Uh, I met Steve, um, at a, had dinner with him uh, for three hours uh, as 25 years ago in 1990, and then met him several times over the next 15, 20 years. Um, and you know, he was a person who could be incredibly charming, 
when he wanted to be, and he could be incredibly vicious when he wanted to be as well. So I think that he was definitely a person that was very much in that, that mm. combination of, mm. of being very difficult and almost impossible sometimes, but when he was charming, he was really charming. Hmm. Um, did you like him? Did I like him? Um, let's say I, uh, I respected him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had some difficult moments with him, like many people do. Um, I had some good moments with him. I had a number of debates and fights with him. So it, you want to share one or two? Oh, sure. Yeah, I do. Um, I think it would be interesting. I so the lo- very first uh, dinner I had with him was actually a dinner that was organized by Andy Grove to get the three of us together. And it was at a time in which... Um, Steve was actually really struggling personally. Mm-hmm. He had started a company called Next Computers, which was failing, and he had decided that he was going to um, develop the, the software operating system he had made for the computer and make it available to compete with Microsoft. And this is back in 1990, before Microsoft Windows took off. Mm-hmm. So the conversation at dinner was Steve said to me, he's going to start selling his software for the first time. He hadn't done it yet. What should he price the software? And so I thought about it for a bit, and I told him that uh, Microsoft was selling DOS at the time for $15 and Windows at the time for $15, and that if he really wanted to be successful, that he should sell his software for somewhere between $25 and $35 if he wanted to create the standard for the industry. And Steve told me that I was a complete idiot. Is that what he said to you? Yeah. He said you're a complete idiot? Yeah. I tell the story in in the book, in Strategy Rules. And the reason was he thought that his product was so good, it was nothing comparable to Microsoft. And clearly, I I didn't understand this. And if I had understood this, I would have known that the right price was $500 or $600 or $700. And it couldn't be $25 or $30 because Microsoft was such a terrible product. And, you know, we thought about this for probably an hour because uh, I kept on trying to argue with him that this was all about creating a standard for the, for the industry, not just about uh, pricing the product for its inherent value. And in the end, I couldn't convince him. But it was a tough argument, tough debate. Wow. And of course, Next never did well. They never were able to sell much of their software because it was always overpriced. Oh. So that must have given you some sense of... Give me a little satisfaction. Yeah, exactly. If if you're just tuning in this morning, you're listening to Talk with Francesca, and I'm speaking with Professor David Yoffe. He's the co-author of Strategy Rules, Five Timeless Lessons from Bill Gates, Andy Grove, and Steve Jobs. So, um, David, these were very different guys. Um, Yet Gates, Grove, and Jobs approached strategy and execution in remarkably similar ways, and yet... um, very different from some of their competitors. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Some people like to think that they were just in the right place in the right time and they got lucky. And our view is that they were in the right place at the right time, but it wasn't about luck because a lot of people were doing uh, in the same place at the same time and they weren't able to develop uh, three of the most valuable companies in the history of the world. So part of what, what um, made these three guys so exceptional was, number one, they, they were able to, to think about the future, to look forward mm-hmm. uh, several steps, sometimes a couple of years, sometimes many years ahead, 
But then most importantly, they were then able to take that discipline of looking about what's coming next and figure out what I had to do today in order to make that work. And that's an incredible discipline that we call look forward and reason back that all three of them shared. Is this something they could have learned or do you, I mean, did, was something innate within them? No, that's a, that's a very important point, which is what we discovered in the research is that all three of them learn these um, ways of approaching strategy over time. That in fact, if you look at both uh, Andy Grove and Steve Jobs, they weren't very good at this in their early parts of their career. Hmm. Andy, for example, was a classic operational manager focused on how to run middle management in an organization. If you look at Steve, he tended to be um, very forward-looking, but he was rarely able to then figure out exactly what that meant in terms of what we needed to do today. Bill, in some ways, was probably better at this early in his career uh, because of the way in which he started his company, but all three of them managed to learn these skills and get better and better and better at it over the period of their career. Who would teach something like this? Well, that's one of the things we actually have fun talking about. All three of them found that they were uh, they needed to get tutors to help them. Mm. They all found that, that they, even though they were incredibly smart, they didn't know everything. And when they understood that they had gaps in their knowledge, they systematically went and found tutors to help them. So in, uh, in the case of, of someone like Jobs, for example, he found someone like Jimmy Ivine, who's the, the founder of Beats and was on American Idol. He was mm-hmm. the person who really taught Steve about music. Hmm. And John Lasseter uh, was the person who taught Steve about movies because Steve did not know anything about movies when he bought Pixar. And he had some experts in the company. Um, actually, one of my MBA students, Ron Johnson, was an executive at Target. And Ron was the one who taught Steve how to think about retail. Um, Ron tells a wonderful story that uh, when he got hired by Steve, Steve said, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to teach you about electronics, and you're going to teach me about retail. Let's go walk the shopping mall. And the two of them went off to the Stanford shopping mall and spent four hours trying to explain to Steve what merchandising was really like and what store layouts were like and how it really worked. And that was true for Bill as well and and Andy, too. They they all systematically went out and found tutors who could help them in the areas where they knew they needed uh, new knowledge. Okay, so we've got look forward, reason back. What else? Second, we talk about that you need to be able to make very big bets, potentially game-changing bets, but you need to do that without betting the company. Yeah, I was going to say without betting the company, exactly. What many entrepreneurs mistakenly do is they make these enormous bets and they lose, and they end up betting the company and go out of business. That would have never been an acceptable discipline for Grove Gates or Jobs. They just wouldn't wouldn't have operated that way. And all three of them, if you look at uh, what made them incredibly successful, it was making these enormously um, risky bets. They were definitely risky. But strategic. But, but, they, were, but they found ways to, to mitigate the risk, to diversify the risk in such ways that they, they never actually put the companies in a position where they might go under. Wow, that's fascinating. I, I, you wonder how they did that. Well, if you look at, at the different bets that they made, um, Bill Gates, for example, the big bet that he made is he went to war with IBM at a time in which IBM was 60 times its size. IBM can make more profit in a couple of months than 
um, Microsoft would generate in revenues in a year. But Bill decides not to go to war with IBM until the Microsoft Office business, the productivity software business, was at least half of their revenue. And so even if they lost in the battle on Windows over OS 2, um, Bill would never actually put the company at risk. So again, he could, he could take this big, bold bet, but he always he had a backup. He had the opportunity to sell software to um, computers for, for, the, uh, for office productivity, and that would have enabled him to, to be successful regardless of IBM's response. Wow. Okay. All right. We're moving on. What else? There are five okay. of them. Um, our, the, the third rule that we, we talk about in the book is the idea that you need to build platforms and ecosystems. You have to go beyond just building a product. The, the great companies today don't just build products. They actually build um, a, a whole world that's outside the boundaries of their firms. And the, the basic theory here is that ultimately what, what history tells us is it's the best platforms that generally win, not the best products. So everybody, for example, who's been around for a while remembers that Betamax, which was the first video cassette yep. recorder, yep. was clearly the, better, uh, the best product on the market, mm -hmm. but it lost to VHS, which was the one that we all ended up having in our home. Right. Most of us would Why also is remember. That? I'm sorry? Why was that? Yeah. Um, in all of these cases, it's generally, the, it's generally because of two things. One... The, the volume that gets created um, in, in some of these products end up attracting other capabilities to the platform. So, for example, in the VHS versus Beta, mm -hmm. VHS got to be slightly bigger than the Sony Betamax in terms of the number of, of units installed early on in its history. And then the, the critical decider in the marketplace was how many movie rentals were available for each platform. So when you and I went to go rent movies, we would go to a store and you'd ask what had the most uh, movies available. And VHS, from the very early days, ended up having slightly more movies than beta. And then eventually VHS had all the movies and beta became irrelevant. The next one I find um, interesting, the, uh, the, uh, they talk, you talk about exploiting leverage and power. Yes. Um, I'm curious about that one in particular. Can you well, here, we, we build on some ideas that we've developed in, in earlier books. Uh, I wrote a book called Judo Strategy a number of years ago. And here the idea is that if you want to be a great strategist, you have to be a master of tactics as well. And you've got to be very good and clever at finding ways to use judo-like moves, but you also have to be willing to be very tough and sometimes even ruthless if you're going to really build a business of uh, the kind of size and stature that Apple, Microsoft, and Intel did. What's the name of the book again? Judo Rules? Uh, no, the <laughs> Judo Strategy. Judo, was, sure, sure. Was strategy Rules, Judo Strategy. Okay. This is Strategy Rules. Strategy Rules, sorry. <laughs> and the previous book was called Judo Strategy. And then Michael and I also wrote a book called Competing on Internet Time, where we talked about this idea of Judo Strategy as well. So what, what, what is a Judo Strategy? The idea in judo strategy is that you use the strengths of your competitor against them, just like you do in judo. That rather than uh, try to compete head-to-head, -head, mm -hmm. sometimes the best thing is to find ways to take advantage of your competitor's momentum and turn it to your advantage. Give us an example. So there, we, we, we talk about a lot of examples in the book, and, and maybe the, the easiest one to think about is... Um, the tactic that we call embrace and extend. 
which is um, when Bill Gates, for example, was deciding that Microsoft had to become a big player on the Internet, he was way behind, very, very far behind. Mm-hmm. You know, it looked for a long time like uh, Netscape was going to basically be the winner in the Internet. Microsoft was going to become irrelevant. So rather than try to just beat Netscape straight out, he embraced this tactic, which we call embrace and extend, where he said, what we're going to do is we're going to embrace everything that Netscape does. Whatever Netscape does, we're going to do it too. We're going to just copy what they do because they're the leader. And then ultimately what we're going to do is find ways to try and extend in new areas where Netscape isn't currently playing. And that embrace and extend tactic took all of the things that Netscape had built and turned it to Microsoft's advantage. And that turned out to become uh, the, the, key, the key tactic that enabled Microsoft to beat Netscape in the browser wars. We just, uh, David, have just a few, very few minutes left, but just what was, there were five timeless lessons, and, and what, what was the last one? The fifth timeless le- lesson was to shape the organization around your personal anchor. And here the idea is that every CEO has something special about them. Mm-hmm. And ultimately what made these guys execute so well mm-hmm. was they really just figured out who they were, they knew themselves well, and they also knew how to fill the gaps and the holes that they themselves couldn't uh, deliver through their own personality and their own skills. And what's critical if you're going to be a great strategist is not only that you develop the strategic idea, but you then get the organization behind you and you build off those things that you know really, really well and fill the holes with all the the critical uh, capabilities and personnel that you actually can't do yourself. So with with just um, less than a minute left, uh, David, what makes this book relevant today? We think that these ideas really are timeless ideas. We we see them being applied by the the new superstars of today, people like Larry Page, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Pony Ma, who runs Tencent, the biggest Internet company in China. And these ideas apply in both the technology world and even the non-technology world. If you look at what companies like General Electric or Disney or Walmart have done, um, they're all basically building on the same basic concepts and the same basic approaches. Fantastic. David Yaffe, co-author of Strategy Rules, Five Timeless Lessons from Bill Gates, Andy Grove, and Steve Jobs. Thanks so much for being with us here this Thank morning. to talk me. with Franceschi. I appreciate it. Okay. All right. A seemingly simple act, such as talking with a colleague, a small exchange of words in a hallway, actually has the ability to alter someone's life permanently. Phrases like, you can't do that, and if you only knew how, may take only seconds to utter, but they can be life-changing. That and more when we come back from the short break. Are you looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you'll want to dine at Terramia's. This North End Italian restaurant provides a simply divine culinary experience and, as quoted in Zagat's Restaurant Guide, pastas without compare. And it's reasonably priced. This North End gem will keep you coming back. Terramia is simply the best Italian restaurant in all of Boston. Call 617-523-3112, 617-523-3112, or terramiarestaurante.com. The Center for Self-Leadership is pleased to present a two-day event with Dick Schwartz and Dan Siegel. For the first time, interpersonal neurobiology will come together with internal family systems April 11th and 12th at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. For more information and registration, visit selfleadership.org. 
There are parts of us that seem to have personalities of their own, and sometimes these parts of us think and act in ways that aren't helpful. Whether it is binge eating, drinking, violent outbursts, or any other struggles we may experience, there is a way to view ourselves and one another that will dramatically enrich our lives. Based on the internal family systems model of psychotherapy, There's a Part of Me is a quick read and offers insights and practical wisdom that brings greater calm, confidence, and compassion. To find out more about internal family systems and There's a Part of Me, visit selfleadership.org today. New England winters can wreak havoc on our vehicles. Sometimes it's just not enough to wash and vacuum them. Sometimes a full detail is in order. Do you remember the last time your car or truck was in that pristine condition? Remember how you felt? It's time to get that feeling back again. A full detailing from Tony's Recon can get you back in the driver's seat. Call Tony at 978-590-3693 or visit Tony'sRecon.com. You'll be glad you did. The new Cobblestone Cafe on Hanover Street in Boston brings casual, on-the-go American fare to the North End, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Open daily at 7 a.m., Cobblestone Cafe offers burgers, barbecue, salads, fries, milkshakes, seafood, and the very popular Snickerdoodle iced coffee. Delivery and catering are also available. Cobblestone Cafe, 227 Hanover Street in Boston. For more information, call 857-263-8057 or visit them online at cobblestonecafene.com. Are you looking to redecorate, remodel, or relocate? Let Lori Ador, designer and owner of Trailing Vine Interiors, help you. Lori has been designing dream homes for nearly a decade. From new construction to redecorating, Lori helps with the entire process, from sketches and shopping to accepting deliveries of furniture. She will be there throughout the entire process so you don't have to. So for a new spring look, call Lori at 781-526-4072. That number again is 781-526-4072. And if you want to relocate, Lori is also a licensed real estate agent and will help you sell your current home so you can purchase your dream home. Lori is transforming spaces and transforming lives. Whatever your style is, Lori will help you achieve it. Call Lori today at 781-526-4072 or visit trailingvineinteriors.com. Who doesn't go to the hair salon to liven up their look? But sometimes you look worse on the way out than you did walking in. You can expect something different at Anthony Capolino Salon. With a super modern feel that can hardly be mistaken for suburban, a full-service hair salon, they offer cuts, color, highlighting, formal design, extensions, relaxers, braiding, and waxing. Anthony has over 15 years working on Newberry Street in Boston. I can tell you from my own experience, I felt transformed and you will too. So if you're looking to turn a few heads, call Anthony Capolino Salon today at 617-625-2887. Conveniently located in the Assembly Square Marketplace in Somerville. Visit anthonycapolino.com. That number again is 617-625-2887. You'll be glad you did. Located in Boston's North End holds one of our best-kept secrets, Antico Forno, ranked number nine of the top ten Italian restaurants around the world within the category of being one of the most authentic. With a welcoming family feel, it's hard to argue the experience you have when enjoying dinner at Antico Forno. Best known for their brick oven pizza, their world-class traditional cuisine does not fall far behind. Come enjoy dinner at Antico Forno and feel like part of the family. Open daily from 11.30 a.m. until 10 p.m. Call us today at 617-723. Or visit us at AnticoFornoBoston.com. Hey, this is James Woods, and you are listening to Talk with Francesca every Saturday morning right here on 1510 Boston. 
Okay, we're back and you're listening to Talk with Francesca. I'm here now with Judith Glazer. She is the CEO of Benchmark Communications and the chairman of the Creating We Institute. Welcome, Judith. Thanks so much for being here this morning on Talk with Francesca. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I know you always ask great questions, oh. so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> so your take on how great leaders get extraordinary results is a little different than the memory we were just chatting about before the break. Um, you know, we were just talking about the arrogance of um, some of the leaders like uh, Steve Jobs, um, in particular, actually Steve Jobs, but also Bill Gates. Um, and Andy Grove, and um, how sometimes they were actually very super dis- disrespectful of their employees. Um, so it seems like the, their whole philosophy is the complete antithesis of of the mentality of you and um, your organization. Can you tell us more mm-hmm. about that? Well, first of all, um, I don't know if we are that different in all um, dimension. So let's talk about that further. Good. Um, I'm really curious to see what the connections are. But what what we have found is that there are certain uh, types of behaviors that leaders have used historically and still use, which is much more of the power over others philosophy. The I'm right. Um, in fact, I'm even addicted to being right. Which ah. makes it harder. Be, right. That's the <laughs> that's kind of the number one. Um, phenomena that we found in business that when a leader gets addicted to their own point of view, when they fall into tell-sell-yell syndromes where they're always telling people what to do and then get upset when people don't do it, those two uh, paradigms don't work to bring out the best in people. They bring out fear. They activate the amygdala, which is the lower part of the brain. We get what's called an amygdala hijack, and people aren't able to access their best thinking when they're fearful of the leader. Well, that's uh, our framework. Well, I mean, people, when they're fearful, can't access much of of anything. Correct, except they want to fight back. They want to free. It's a fight, 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 uh, freeze phenomena. And many many times it's also a piece where they'll give in and not say what they really want to say. And then uh, they become quiet and silent because people just don't know how to respond to those leaders. So I'm not saying that a Bill Gates is, uh, or um, uh, Jobs is, had a healthy way of interacting with people. I think he was an incredibly passionate visionary mm-hmm. who saw the future of what could be created and didn't develop a tolerance for people who couldn't get it as quickly as he did. Right. And, and actually, that, it, we were just talking, I, I was speaking to the author of uh, Strategy Rules, which is um, about to come out, um, Professor David Yaffe, and he was saying just that. I mean, he actually even had, um, when he w- had met with Steve Jobs, he had gotten into um, some arguments with him. And, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, um, but he wasn't, he certainly wasn't addicted to being right. I, I, I did not get that. Um, but that's an mm-hmm. interesting one. There's a lot of ego in in with leaders, don't you think? Um, many leaders get uh, have two sides to them, and I can't say all the time what the proportion is. But one side is that as you climb up the ladder and you get more and more confidence because your instincts are good, or your, the decisions you make, or how you influence gets the organization further, and you see that the dollar signs that show up in the bank for the company get greater and greater, that reinforces a person's sense that their instincts and their knowledge and their wisdom are right. Mm -hmm. And some leaders get carried away, um, really carried away with that, and stop listening to what other people have to say. That's not everybody, but that's some leaders. There's even some belief that the leaders that go that way are more insecure than others. 
because it takes a lot for a leader to have a point of view and open up and listen to other people. In fact, it takes more of leadership to do that. Oh, you know, absolutely. This, so you've written yeah. a book, Conversational Intelligence. Tell, yep. tell us about that. Um, this book is a culmination. This is my seventh book, and this is the one that um, has just taken the world by storm, at least from what I can see. It's gone into its third printing. Um, oh, it, fabulous. It Congratulations. It is the world. Hmm? I said, Pardon me? Fabulous. Congratulations. It, thank you. Thank you. And we get calls every day from different countries. We're now setting up Creating We Institutes globally for people. We have uh, people that are going to be our partners there. They are partners now, wanting to bring this and translate this work into their countries. Um, we even got a call from someone who wants to bring it to Congress. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> So, so tell us, tell us about this, your institute and your, your book. Tell us more so that we can. Right. So what, I, what I've done is for 30 years or plus since I've been in companies, work with CEOs going through transformation, and I started to keep track of, or Benchmark, that's the name of my company, Benchmark mm-hmm. Communication, keep track of the patterns that go with successful people, successful teams, and successful companies. And at, over a, a period of time, these patterns started to emerge with great clarity that there are certain things that leaders do to bring people together, to activate the part of the brain that has good instincts, wisdom, strategic thinking, foresight. Um, all the, the prefrontal cortex has those capacities to literally enable us to think about the future and even intuit the future. But so many leaders interact at a lower level of intelligence than they could and should have been acting with their people and then don't get the results and don't understand why, and many leaders default to telling people more often what to do or to yell or to just say, look, I'm right, just follow what I say, you know, follow the leader. So we've studied these patterns. We've gone into companies and done major uh, makeovers, conversational makeovers. We'll go in and observe leaders or people that are going to sell to customers or are selling and aren't getting the results they want. We'll do a deconstruction of what their conversations are and give them new ways, new patterns of interaction, I call them interaction dynamics that enhance their listening and enhance their ability to ask really great discovery questions and bring people out to think together and co-create the future together. So and practically speaking, give us, give, give us an actual example of how, let's say, a salesperson might... might do, you, do you want an example, Francesca, for, uh, about a company, a team, or individuals? Um, an individual. Okay, here's an individual. Uh, I was hired um, by a guy from Verizon. Um, he had actually interviewed 13 coaches before he chose me. And I asked him, you know, what is it about what I said to you and with you that made a difference? And he said, you're the first person that didn't make me wrong from the very beginning. In other words, he had gotten some bad ratings. And most people came in saying, well, we understand that there are things to work on. Let's talk about what you'd like to work on in coaching. And I said, I have no idea what anything is, you know, what the data is, what it says, what it means. We're going to work on this together. So anyway, he he was about to be fired because one of the people on his team ended up in the hospital with an almost heart attack. I mean, he almost died because of the pressure that this guy was putting on his team. Wow. And when I started to interview him and get to know him, and I said, well, what are the things that you're doing? He said, I don't understand. I'm a best practice leader. And I said, what does that mean? And he said... I really care about my people. Um, I care so much that I want them to be great leaders. I send them home with leadership articles to read, and we talk about them when we come in on Monday. And, 
you know, when they're doing reports for the, for the CEO, I, I help them edit it to make sure they're really good so that they get the best letters, you know, and work done for the CEO. It sounded like he really was doing yeah. wonderful things for his people. Well, except but, for they weren't, they weren't having much free time on the weekend. <laughs> well, not only did they not have time on the weekend, it's funny you should say that, on Thanksgiving he was so proud that his team was on the phone with one of their international customers who don't celebrate Thanksgiving and dealing with the customer problems at that most important time, you know, Thanksgiving is a family time. Right. We all get together. So he just had his head locked on best practice, and he had his list of what he was doing, and he wasn't open at all to doing it any other way until, of course, we start to work together. So how did you get around and, that? Uh, it, sorry? So I'm how sorry? did you get around that? How did I get around it? I said this. I said, let's do, what I do with leaders is I call experiments. I look at the patterns that they are interacting through, find the pattern that I think is causing them problems, and then ask them to shift the pattern. I call it making a leader shift. And I say, experiment okay. with something. So he was, by his, the reports of his direct reports, he was very much a telling leader. Lot and lot, lot of telling. Tell us what to do. Tell us how to do it. Mm-hmm. Not asking how they would do it. Not engaging them and thinking out loud with him. So I had him for 24 hours move from telling to asking. And why I do this is with conversational intelligence. When the brain picks up a new pattern, it responds differently chemically. When it's in an old pattern that locks it down, we become less mindful of what the pattern is. We just kind of operate out of mm-hmm. you know rote. And we don't even realize that we're doing something that's not working. But it really has been a lot of rerouting of, of the brain lately. There's been yes. a lot of talk about that. There really has been. Yes, it's the, yes that our brain, that we are learning that our brains are much more plastic. It's neuroplasticity of the brain. Mm-hmm. And because of that neuroplasticity, we can rewire the brain again. Once we identify a pattern and we shift the pattern, the brain actually wakes up again. And it starts to produce different chemistry that enables us to learn and be more awake and more alert and pick up more insights and information. And that's the best place to be. That's the growing brain. That's not the brain that's kind of locked into the past. So that's really so, where you're coming from in terms of, of what you're promoting, if you will, is that our brain actually has the capacity to change. And once we learn a certain way of, of being, that it really be, it does become more natural. It does, become, it does become more natural. And what I'm also saying, which is the very, very big idea, is that for so many years, I even studied this in school, and I never believed it. I've, I've been the rebel in the, on this point of view. Um, there's so much that says that people are born with a certain characteristics, certain ways of being. They're fixed, and they're not going to change. So, you know, if a person's an introvert, they'll always be. If they're an extrovert, they'll always be. If they're a thinker or an intuitor or whatever it is, that they'll always be. And I have challenged that since the beginning of time um, when I started my first research project with young kids and found that we could actually influence how children operate in the world and elevate their IQ with different ways of engaging with them. And that's the premise that's done all, taken all the, this work forward. So we are, we are now learning the truth. We are more neuroplastic than we thought that understanding what the patterns are and creating a, a down-regulation or a lowering of some of the things you're doing and an up-regulation of other things, um, like what I did with this leader, I said, don't tell. Let's just down-regulate telling, less, less, less of it, and try asking more because those two are hooked. They're hooked together, and the brain feels the energy shift. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're looking for is an activation of a new type of energy. And 
he went to, well, he did 24 hours of this, and afterwards his people called me. I did not ask them to call. They called me and said, and this is the greatest quote, I love it, what did you give my boss to drink? <laughs> what was in that Kool-Aid? This is so refreshing, Judith, um, because, yeah. it, it, you know, we don't have to be, you know, this goes far beyond even what we're talking about, obviously. I mean, and, you know, when you think about, um, you know, kids being brought up and, and with labels and, you know, if, 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 if it almost sounds too simple to be true. It's, it, what you just said about labels is, I think, the hook that I want people to get because every human being knows what it feels like to be labeled and to be labeled inaccurately. Right. We all may have a teacher that, you know, sees us as lazy or, you know, insubordinate or whatever it is that we hear from people, and that can lock us down and close us down into a self-perception that is very false. It's a moment of somebody else's um, uh, interpretation. And, and then, of course, we start love, believing it, right? And then when we believe it, all, we recreate it. We, mo- what you said is true, because we get our, our self-concept uh, a lot from other people, how they, what they call us. And once we start to believe those labels, we become them. Just what you said. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, Judith, uh, well, um, if in, in sort of a brief synopsis, what would you say like the three do's and don'ts um, business leaders should follow? Almost it doesn't sound like it's just for business leaders, but really for it can, it can extend um, into almost everything. I get calls. It is everything, Francesca. It's everything. I get calls from parents. I get calls from spouses telling me stories, and I'll give you some of the tips to share with um, with your audience. Because some will say, "Oh my God, this is so simple. I can't believe it's going to make all this difference." But it does. Oh, good. It really, really does. So, uh, first of all, there's there's something that people believe, and and we often believe that people think what we think and feel what we think, uh, feel what we feel, and uh, see what we see because we're living in the same world. But it's as far from the truth as you can imagine that human beings each have a different reality. We each see the world differently, and we can't make that assumption anymore. We have to realize that we live in two different worlds, and our job is to connect those worlds, to find ways of bridging between one person's reality and another's. Um, Too often... We listen to judge because we're very quick. We judge to where we fit in. Right. We uh, fit into the conversation. We judge to say whose idea is better, yours or mine, that that amazing judgment plays out in human beings so much. So the mistakes are, you know, thinking other people share the same reality, um, uh, you know, coming up with uh, um, uh, listening. Uh, let, me, let me focus really on, on one that's unbelievably important is when we have that belief that other people and we see the same thing but don't, we then start to ignore their perspectives when they show up. We don't even hear them and we don't even see them. Well, it's it's yeah. a fascination wow. of the brain. You know, it gets us into that addicted to being right perspective. So I want to give people some things that they can do. The yes. most important thing is to listen, to connect, not judge or reject. Being really present. Being present without judgment, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's hard work for some people. For others, once they start to do it, they go, oh, my God, I can't believe that you could look at someone and in a point zero seven seconds, when you listen to connect, not judge, a person can feel the shift in your energy. They look you in the eye a different way, and their brain literally spews out more oxytocin, which is the chemistry that creates bonding. Right. 
It happens in the moment. It's, it's so profound, Francesca, that, it's, that some doctors have actually taken this oxytocin, which is the most frequently produced neurotransmitter in the body, and put it into a spray and have done incredible experiments with children that are uh, labeled autistic, go back to our labeling, mm-hmm. and they are able to shift an autistic child's behavior to connect and collaborate without doing any training. It's just that the chemical shift engenders a new type of behavior from that child. That, that is that is phenomenal. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Talk with Francesca, and I'm speaking with Judith Glazer. She is the CEO of Benchmark Communications and the chairman of the Creating We Institute. She is also the author of Conversational Intelligence. Um, okay, so let's see. So we've got, we're, we're on to the, the three do's and don'ts business leaders should follow. Um, so let's just keep at it. Okay, so the listen to connect is what is a do. Mm-hmm. Listen to connect, not reject or judge. The second one is asking questions for which you have no answers. If you observe people asking each other questions, very often we ask leading questions where we're really confirming what we know. We're not opening up each other's minds to think in new ways. And if instead of saying, um, you really agree with me, don't you? Mm-hmm. And thinking that's a question, which it's not. Right. <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> right? Oh, you, uh, that, that, you know, say, what is it about what I said that excites you? You're getting at what's inside of them that they need to, so that you know what clicked for them. So ask questions for which you have no answers. And then um, another one is called priming for trust, that when we trust someone, our brains open up automatically. When we don't, then our brains close down. And by appreciating another human being, appreciating their perspective, um, not always challenging them to get your idea in, shifting that behavior to um, being trusting and pulling them out and being transparent, human beings show up differently. It's like, I mean, I see it over and over again with the leaders I work with. When you teach them these skills, they literally show up like a new person. That person's inside of them, mm-hmm. but you've unlocked that. But don't you and think they part can unlock of that? But, but, mm-hmm. And I appreciate that, but, and, and, um, but just playing the devil's advocate, isn't part of this really somewhat of a, a no-brainer? You know what I mean? Like, it's really, when we think about it, I mean, obviously, you know, we're, you know, we're in the people business. Um, but, I mean, anyone who's out there, you know, who's a leader is in the people business. And wouldn't it just seem like a natural way to be, to to, to be, you know, to to be more open, to create a trusting environment, to, aren't those all just sort of natural things that we would, we would we would naturally do to connect with others? You would naturally think <laughs> that people would naturally do it. <laughs> but, you know, I don't I mean, and I'm not saying that I, I, I'm, I'm perfect at it, far from it. Um, but, I mean, that is how you connect with people, and that's, that's kind of a natural thing. You know, if you're really all into yourself and, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, um, all these things, these are not good, these are not qualities that are going to bring people to you. And, I mean, don't we just naturally know these things anyway? Well, I, I, I have to say that in the 33 years that I've been in business, it's pushing even longer than that now, um, I wouldn't have the practice, the kind of practice I did, and, and it would not have been growing so much if we were all perfect people. It, what is fascinating is, when we um, read books about biases and mm-hmm. blind spots, which is a big topic these days. Oh, yeah. We find, yeah, so we, we know that people want to show up good and great. They want to show up 
doing the right thing. They want to show up being inspired. But they don't all the time do that. And what happens is, and I, I'd love to have people take a look at this research because it's so beautiful. Um, when people um, are blind because they're being pushed to get results, when leaders are fearful that they're not going to make those results, they really don't see the impact they have and they start to push. Mm. And even the best leaders do this. And when they do it, unfortunately, it activates that fear hormone. And even if you do it once out of 10 times, cortisol, which is the fear hormone, when it's extruded, when it's produced in the brain, has a 26-hour shelf life, which means that it lasts much longer than oxytocin. It's something that disturbs and distresses the brain to produce other hormones to protect us from harm. So 26-hour shelf life versus an hour or five minutes or 10 minutes of saying something nice to a person will offset the balance. And so when leaders say to me, I only said it once, and what they said was in public in front of all their peers, and it was threatening to one of the peers, and then it not only lasted 26 hours for those people, but the repercussions and the, the rumination and all the things that right. go with it that we kind of forget about because it was only once, mm-hmm. um, we forget. And so this work is to open up people's minds to see the real chemical impact. So my book has incredible insight, data, practices, rituals, mm-hmm. frameworks that show people how to look at this thing called conversational intelligence, to look at it and know that we all have that intelligence. You're right. We have it hardwired. But because of what goes on in life around us, right. we often get kicked out of being that great leader. We show up every once in a while. And I literally had one leader who only did it once or twice to her people. But that, when I went in, they were talking about it like it was yesterday. And they ruminated with their family and they ruminated with their friends. And it became a big, 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 big deal. Well, that I... reality of you know, being hurt by the boss mm-hmm. became the reality that they projected onto the boss. So it's really very important for the readers then to understand the connection between the brain and human interactions, obviously. I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, yeah. un- understanding and, this really makes the difference because you, you know you're just not sort of acting out, but that it really has repercussions. It in, has a ripple in, effect. In, in, yeah. in either direction. Mm-hmm. Okay. In either, in either direction. And the answer is not to um, pretend and just say nice things to people and think that that's the better way to do it either because mm-hmm. the human brain picks up candor as one of the primary things that it sniffs out in that point zero seven seconds. So mm-hmm. if a, a leader decides, okay, now tomorrow I'm going to start saying, oh, how wonderful everybody is because that's what Glazer is saying. That's not what I'm saying. No. Um, it, it, there's a balance between candor, being candid with someone and telling them the truth in a way that they can hear it, and, and being ca- and caring. And when the two go hand in hand, when a leader says to a person, I want to talk to you about how I can help you get to the next level. And here are some things that I've seen that might help you. Um, I've struggled with the same things. You know, I know that every leader does because it's the important step from managing people to leading. Let's take a look at these things together because I want to stretch you to the best you can. If a leader, if a person hears that, they say, oh, my God, my boss cares about me. Right. I want to do it. But if they hear the boss say, what did you do? You did that again. I can't. How many times do I have to tell you that's not leader behavior? You know, that doesn't work. Judith Glazer, no. author of Conversational Intelligence. Thank you so much for being with us here this morning on Talk with Francesca. It's excellent. I just love the conversation. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay. Great day to you, too. <laughs> okay. It's time to wrap things up and say goodbye. Hope you enjoyed the show. Love to hear from you with any comments or questions. Remember the website address is talkwithfrancesca.com. See you next week. Same time, same place. Make it a great week. Don't try so hard.
Are you looking for an authentic Italian meal in an intimate setting? Then you'll want to dine at Terramia's. This North End Italian restaurant provides a simply divine culinary experience and, as quoted in Zagat's restaurant guide, pastas without compare. And it's reasonably priced. This North End gem will keep you coming back. Terramia is simply the best Italian restaurant in all of Boston. Call 617-523-3112, 617-523-3112, or terramiarestaurante.com. The Center for Self-Leadership is pleased to present a two-day event with Dick Schwartz and Dan Siegel. For the first time, interpersonal neurobiology will come together with internal family systems April 11th and 12th at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. For more information and registration, visit selfleadership.org. There are parts of us that seem to have personalities of their own, and sometimes these parts of us think and act in ways that aren't helpful. Whether it is binge eating, drinking, violent outbursts, or any other struggles we may experience, there is a way to view ourselves and one another that will dramatically enrich our lives. Based on the internal family systems model of psychotherapy, There's a Part of Me is a quick read and offers insights and practical wisdom that brings greater calm, confidence, and compassion. To find out more about internal family systems and There's a Part of Me, visit selfleadership.org today. Are you looking to redecorate, remodel, or relocate? Let Lori Ador, designer and owner of Trailing Vine Interiors, help you. Lori has been designing dream homes for nearly a decade. From new construction to redecorating, Lori helps with the entire process, from sketches and shopping to accepting deliveries of furniture. She will be there throughout the entire process so you don't have to. So for a new spring look, call Lori at 781-526-4072. That number again is 781-526-4072. And if you want to relocate, Lori is also a licensed real estate agent and will help you sell your current home so you can purchase your dream home. Lori is transforming spaces and transforming lives. Whatever your style is, Lori will help you achieve it. Call Lori today at 781-526-4072 or visit trailingvineinteriors.com. Who doesn't go to the hair salon to liven up their look? But sometimes you look worse on the way out than you did walking in. You can expect something different at Anthony Capolino's Salon. With a super modern feel that can hardly be mistaken for suburban, a full-service hair salon, they offer cuts, color, highlighting, formal design, extensions, relaxers, braiding, and waxing. Anthony has over 15 years working on Newberry Street in Boston. I can tell you from my own experience, I felt transformed and you will too. So if you're looking to turn a few heads, call Anthony Capolino Salon today at 617-625-2887. Conveniently located in the Assembly Square Marketplace in Somerville. Visit anthonycapolino.com. That number again is 617-625-2887. You'll be glad you did. Dear Smokey Bear, for teaching us how to prevent wildfires for 70 years. Outdoor lovers would like to say something. Happy 70th, big guy. Let's bring it in for a bear hug. Come on. For safety tips, visit SmokeyBear.com. The preceding was a sponsored program.